Today, I will be reading Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 25, if you'd like to follow along. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Would you please pray with me? God, we are so grateful for your faithful blessings and the assurance we have of a relationship with you because of the sacrifice Jesus made for us. Today, we especially thank you for the blessing of community and having others in our lives who can encourage us and remind us of your love as we reflect that love to each other through our caring and deeds. In this season, you have given us so many reminders of how vast and strong the community of those who love you is. We saw it in photos and stories all the way from India and also right here in our hometown as we've been welcomed into church buildings, not only as guests, but also as members of the community of those who love and trust in you. We pray that as Matt comes up to share the message that he would feel our encouragement and that you would give us ears and hearts that are ready to receive what you would have us here. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So we are wrapping up a series that we've been in on community for several weeks. And each week we've talked about a different expression of community. We've talked about community as testimony, community as mission, community as resistance, community as sanctification and healing. And today we talk about community as rhythm. Rhythm. Some of us have it and some of us don't. Last week, we got a little picture into Greg and Lee's time in India, if you weren't with us, and we saw that Greg danced while he was in India. Yes, there he is, dancing. Does Greg have rhythm or not? Maybe we'll ask Lee and find out, or maybe Greg swore, made Lee swear to never tell a soul, right? We use that word rhythm in a lot of different ways um, in our world, even though originally uh, it was a musical term uh, to describe something. But we talk about rhythm as uh, the rhythm of your day or the, while you're in rhythm applying some sort of sports technique. So for all of you that watched the three-point contest in the NBA last, last night like I did, um, some guys just get in rhythm as they're shooting those shots. We also talk about rhythm with dancing and the jury's out whether Greg has it or not. But oftentimes this word rhythm, when it's used as a musical term, is used synonymously for the beat or the tempo, when actually those are two very different things. The beat is the underlying pulse of the piece of the music. It's the tempo. 
while the rhythm is the pattern of notes and accents that create the musical texture. And the catch is that the rhythm has to follow the beat. It has to come in line in alignment with the tempo. For myself, I've been uh, doing worship for a while at church now, and I by no means am like a musician. Um, and one of the ways I found that out is because uh, there was a time our worship bands were starting to talk about using this thing called a click. So a click, if you're unfamiliar, is a metronome. And what you do is you set the, the metronome or the tempo to go in through your in-ears that you see the musicians playing so that you all the, know the tempo and the beat of the song that you're supposed to be playing to. The problem for people might, like me is when you get out of alignment with the beat, it becomes all the more like awful and terrible and cringy because everyone else still has the f- track of what we're supposed to be playing at while someone has either slowed down or sped up. So I would play on my own practicing with the metronome and I just found it was so easy for me to slow down or speed up. It was hard to come in alignment with this tempo and to play the rhythm on top of it. If we step back now to think about this in spiritual terms, there is a beat, there is a tempo an underlying way of living and being that God has established for his people in his kingdom. And as we talk about community as rhythm, the rhythm of community seeks to align itself with the driving beat, the tempo of God and his ways. And to live that, to express that in the rhythms of life on a day-to-day basis. Not each situation is always going to look the exact same, but the more we as God's people come in alignment with the beat of his kingdom, his ways, who he is, and express that, the more we see the rhythms of the gospel play out in our lives. It's one thing to do this as a solo artist, just you trying to line yourself up with the metronome or with God's kingdom, following him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's another thing when you have a whole band trying to do this. It's another when you have an orchestra, all wanting to match this beat. People that know the tempo that we're supposed to be playing at, so what happens if I mess up? What happens if I fail? What happens if I miss my part? What if I slow down or speed up? But also it's with a group of people that know the music that's supposed to be played. And when the sounds are played to the beat of the kingdom, when our lives come more in alignment with God and with one another, something truly beautiful happens. There are so many places that we could go this morning in scripture to talk about the rhythm of community, something that God has established for his people. But I want us to camp out in Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 14. It will be on the screen, but I encourage you, if you have your Bible, turn there, open it up so that we can sift through this together. Uh, I see this as I've spent time in it as a passage that helps us remember the core beat of the gospel. Like, what is it that's driving this way of living for God's people? But then in turn, it encourages rhythms in community to live out together in response to this good news. 
on our own, and we've talked about this in a myriad of different ways, on our own, we don't know the beat of God's kingdom. We cannot follow God without his help. On our own, we are lost. This is because of the brokenness of sin or our friend Jamie that came and shared with us a couple weeks ago talked about how we've been malformed because of sin. This leads to fear, hiding, isolation, control, sin. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ's death puts to death in us this old way of living and thinking. And his resurrection raises us to new life in him. And this is the underlying beat that we live to, that we align ourselves with the gospel, the good news about who our king is and what he's done so that he has given us access to follow him, not just as individuals, but as his people together. The writer of Hebrews is specifically targeting Hebrew Christians as the audience of first listeners, first readers of this text. So with that, they would be very aware of the sacrificial system that God set up and established for his people through Moses in the tabernacle and then also in the temple as well. But where we're diving in 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 Hebrews 10 The author's trying to make it clear that Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, that now no more sacrifices are needed in the way that people drew near to God in the past, that what Jesus has done through his body, through his blood, and through his resurrection has completed all of it, that it has fulfilled all of it, and we can trust in this ultimate sacrifice of God's Son. So verse 14, let's hear it again. Or actually for the first time, we didn't cover this one when Laura read with us. So as we're diving in, they write, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And I feel like there's a couple words that should jump off the pages to us when we read this. The first is this. So, in re- so what has happened through this complete and full fulfillment sacrifice of Jesus? He has made us perfect. And that is a word that our culture really has tarnished in a lot of ways. Like when we hear the word perfect, we have all these sorts of expectations and not measuring up and all this that probably this word fully doesn't mean here. Being perfect on the, on the outside, right, is what we think about. Looking in the mirror and loving everything we see that someone can't pick it apart. But here, this word perfect, in other places it's used in scripture too, it's good to think of it as complete or whole. Or another way to think about what God has done, how he has made us through the sacrifice is that he has added what is yet wanting in order to render a thing full. So in what we were lacking, all of us, each in our own way, because of being fallen, sinful people, God has added what we lacked on our own. He has made us perfect. He has sealed that in eternity as well. And we've received the reality of eternity now, even though it goes against all of our senses and goes against what our flesh tries to tell us. 
And he's promised then in turn to make us holy. This is that sanctifying process that Greg talked about a couple weeks ago. Those rocks in the rock tumbler that have all these imperfections, all this old way of living. And through this rock tumbler, they are being made new, stripping away the parts of it that don't have beauty. And all the more the beauty of the creator being reflected out in the world This is what Jesus does in each one of us and uses community to do this process as well. He is making us holy, refining us, setting us apart for God's special use. Verse 15 and 16. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. That through Jesus' complete sacrifice, we have received his Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in turn has put God's law and God's ways on our hearts. It's not just on a sheet of paper in front of us to follow, but because his presence lives in us, he guides us in the way, in the beat of God's kingdom, where once we didn't have any rhythm whatsoever, we couldn't hear the beat, we couldn't keep the beat, all of a sudden the good counselor of the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we start to hear it. We start to pick it up, even though it may sound foreign to us at first, as time goes on and we trust in him more and more, the good counselor points us to the rhythm of God's kingdom, the tempo of God's kingdom. And at times then too, we start to recognize because of the Holy Spirit, when we are out of alignment with his kingdom, that he comes to convict the world of sin. And through the Holy Spirit, through what Jesus has done, we have access to our God. That we have received this Holy Spirit that was sealed behind a veil through this curtain in the tabernacle. God's personal holy presence sealed behind the curtain in the temple. Jesus' sacrifice has made a way for his spirit, that presence, for him to live in his people. Verse 17, then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Have you noticed a theme yet? In this beat of God's kingdom, the good news, we haven't done anything yet. This is all what he has done that he's the one that's given us the perfect sacrifice in his son, that he's the one that's made a way for us to receive his Holy Spirit, that he's the one that has made us perfect. He is the one that's completed us. He is the one that has promised to sanctify us. He's the one here that says, I've removed your sins from you. 
that as 1 Corinthians 13 says, as Paul has this beautiful chapter describing what love is, Paul says that love keeps no record of wrongs. That God, while he knows the great wages of sin that brings about death, God has chosen in Christ to cancel the debt that our sin owes. And it's not like God just brushes this under the rug or chooses to like set this aside about this, uh, set this aside about us. No, as far as the East is from the West, he has removed our sin, our iniquities from us, remembering them no more. That once we were separated from God and now through Christ, we have been separated from sin in God's eyes. This all sets the stage for then verse 19, where then the author says, therefore, so out of all of what God has done, all of who he is, all that he has accomplished, the beat that he has established, look at how he has caused you to come in alignment with his kingdom. Here's the rhythms of life that you should live in, that we should live in together in response to this good news. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, and let's pause there and not just glaze over that really quick because the author of Hebrews includes himself, herself in this space and says that ultimately we are family. We are family. I view you as my brother or my sister. You are to view one another as brother and sister. That this is our deepest way of knowing one another because of our connectedness to Christ. One of the direct effects because of the gospel is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Family is awesome and complicated. Family has great potential for beautiful moments of love, beautiful moments of joy, of success, of living the life together as God intended. Family also is capable of a lot of hardship. Uh, even in families that we would say are good families or, man, my family's fine. We all know the gymnastics of navigating scenarios with our families or at least our extended family. I'm learning that as I get older. It's like, man, family is tricky when you have your own family and then you're trying to connect family also that's extended your parents and your spouse's parents and then your, your uh, brothers and sisters-in-laws and all being on the same page. It, it is tricky to navigate at times. Family also has a lot of potential for brokenness and hurt. And my guess is that many of us have experienced that in this room. but God's design has always been for family. When he first creates Adam and Eve, he says, be fruitful, multiply, have kids, fill the earth with this family that follows me, that walks with me and reflects me in the world. And here we see that 
believers, those who have trusted in Jesus, are this redeemed family that God has intended from the beginning. That we're brothers and sisters, and we ultimately find our greatest commonality in who our Savior is, something that joins us and ties us together deeper than any bloodline or deeper than any cultural connection. So my question to us is, is that how we view each other? When you talk about harvest, do you talk about people? Do I talk about people as people that just attend a church with me? Or that's my brother, that's my sister. That even though we make a pretty strange assortment of people, if we're honest, right? Like, when would we all hang out otherwise? <laughs> like, it's not gonna happen. Unless it's the three-point contest last night, because you guys all watched that. Uh, our deepest commonality, our love for one another as brother and sister comes through Jesus. Fear and control want us to look at a room of people like this and say, you can't give your life to these people. You can't sacrifice for them. Do you know how different these people are from you? If only you knew the sin in their hearts. If only you knew their history. If only you knew how they voted. If you only knew their thoughts on the latest hot topic going on in the news. If you only knew why they missed church last week, fear and control want to keep us out of community and out of a family that looks at one another and doesn't see our commonality in Christ, but sees all the ways that we should be separate from one another. way that God has been sanctifying me and I don't know if it's the last several months or last year is just challenging me in this regard. That I could slap on those Christian words at times of saying brother, sister. Do I really mean that? Do I mean it in the way that when the author of Hebrews says it here and says it to all these people that would ultimately read this in the Hebrew Christian circles that it would go through, and ultimately to us as well. He, they say, brother, sisters, let's do this together. Is that how I view, not just the people in this room, is that I, how I view the brothers and sisters here at Grace that are offering their building to us, no charge? Is that how I view NGC Camus, who's hosting our youth group on Wednesday nights? Is that how I view our brothers and sisters at Gateway in Washougal that's now hosting our playgroup on Tuesday mornings? Is that how, and it starts here. Like if we can't do that here, how could we extend that past this space of people that we meet with on a regular basis? Because it's easy to keep people at arm's length through judgment it's easy to not risk knowing others or being known by others. It's easy to withhold love because of self-preservation. 
but to be brothers and sisters in Christ means that God is working in each of us, making us more like his son. We both have his spirit living in us. We both know we're broken, but are being renewed by the life that comes through Jesus. Wow, that was dramatic effect. That was unplanned. Somebody tell somebody at Grace that that's going on. To say brother and sister to one another puts on eyes like our father who despite knowing us perfectly inside and out, all our shortcomings has said, that's my son, that's my daughter. Verse 19, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. That veil that kept people from the holy presence of God because the holiness wasn't bad. It was so good that they would die because of their sin to approach God in that manner. That veil is torn away for God's people through the tearing of Christ's flesh as he is crucified. We see that in the temple, the veil is torn. The curtain comes down that people who follow Jesus now have access to the holy of holies, the Holy Spirit who doesn't just make his dwelling in a temple, but the temple is now God's own people, his church. And that with that, we can have confidence in drawing near to him that he is the God who has drawn near to us. The section then, um, after this little brief, therefore, goes into really what is the response for God's people. Yes, to see one another as brothers and sisters. Yes, to draw near to God, which is the goal. When we gather as community, what we are doing in this space is drawing near to God together. Like, that's why we do this. That's why we have community groups. That's why when we hang out with one another, we hope to build connections that run deeper than just something that we have in common like an activity. We want to draw near to God with one another. This next section, though, is three let us's. So the author says, let us do this, let us do this, let us do this. And I read a commentary that pointed out something I had not seen, which is usually the case, um, that in this section of let us is each one directly connects actually to 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul ends that chapter of love. These three remain faith, hope and love. And we'll see it. Each one of these let us is the first is let us have faith. The next let us hope and then let us love. Verse 22. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. Sincere is not a word that I use too often. But as I looked into this word a little bit more, you could say a true heart. 
or a word that I like, and maybe it's kind of like trendy, I don't know, authentic heart. As a community, when we gather together, let's gather together in sincerity, in authenticity. Authenticity, bringing in our joy that God has given us through ways that he has been at work in our week or in our lives, that we are unashamed, that we have confidence to proclaim that joy as we praise him. Whether that's in, it's probably easy for us to just think about this in this setting. Remember, as we're talking about community, this is an important expression of community that we do. But when we gather together as Christians, we are still a part of this essential community And we should bring our joy that the Lord has given us when we gather as a testimony to his faithfulness and how he is at work in our lives. We also, when we gather together and have this authenticity, we bring our sorrow. The ways that we have been asking God why throughout the week. The ways where we have experienced brokenness, confusion, heartache, We bring that together to God as well. And that too is a testimony. We come together with our sin and confess in authenticity. And we seek to repent and not just repent outwardly so it looks like we're doing something right. We come to God together with a true heart wanting to align ourselves with the beat of the gospel over and over and over again. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. How can we draw near to God with an authentic, a sincere heart? It's because of what Jesus has done on the cross clearing our guilty consciences. We can draw near to God together authentically when we cling to the truth of the gospel. That's the beat that we gather to. If God has proclaimed and made me right in his sight, despite my victories, despite failures, seasons of feeling stagnant, his cleansing and purifying from the inside out is the truth that I can cling to and then live out in community. But I think, if you're anything like me, at times we are kept from wanting to draw near to God together authentically. We think that it's too much. We think that, what will people think? And one of the things that has played a huge role in my story with the Lord is the fear of condemnation from others. And it still plays a part, but especially when I was younger for the first 20 years of my life, fear of condemnation kept me hiding, kept me in fear, kept me in my sin, because if it all came out, what would happen? And then one night I was at youth group And I heard John 8 taught. And feel free, you can turn to John 8 if you want or follow along. If you were to read John chapter 8, you would see a story where the religious leaders want to trap Jesus, which was a theme over and over again. 
And the way that they wanted to trap him this time is they found out there was a woman in the town where Jesus was teaching and performing miracles who was committing adultery. And so they somehow find a way to go into her home or the home of the uh, other person she was committing adultery with. They grab her, leave the other guy, and then pull her out into the street before Jesus throw her at his feet and say, the law of Moses commands that we kill this woman. What do you say? And the trap is if Jesus says, yes, kill her, then the Pharisees, the religious leaders get to say, he's on our side. Look, people, he's just in line with us. But if he says, don't kill her, then he's a heretic who's disobeying the law that Moses gave the people. So what does Jesus do? Jesus does his like Jesus jujitsu and does something totally unexpected. And he bends down and he starts writing in the sand. And then we get verse seven of John eight. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? As if he doesn't know. Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Jesus makes it abundantly clear that these people that have gathered at this scene to throw stones at a woman, they have no space to do this because they themselves are sinners. None has followed God's law and God's ways perfectly. All have sinned and fallen short. And he says, if you haven't sinned, throw that first stone. But when they're confronted with this reality, they drop their stones and walk away. The people aren't able to condemn this woman. But here, really, sometimes I think we think of that scene as like the high point of the story. But now all of a sudden, there's just this woman in Jesus, and he gave the reason that they couldn't condemn her because they had sinned. Now, she's confronted with the one who has not sinned. She's confronted with God himself. And if he applies the same logic, well, one who have no sin can throw the first stone, that means Jesus himself could be the one to do that. And what does he do? He says, neither do I condemn you, but go, leave your life of sin. That if God has chosen to forgive us our sins, to make us new, if he has said we have a right standing with him, that we are hidden in Christ, then we need not fear condemnation from others especially from our brothers and sisters in Christ who have received the same grace that we received when we too were at Jesus's feet needing his mercy. And we also need to remember to extend God's grace to one another. 
to others as well. As we long for them to have a space where they can trust that they will not be condemned by those who have received grace and mercy from the living God. That they would grow, that we would grow to the place where we can share our struggles of sin with one another. We can share the brokenness that we've experienced in community and ultimately walk with people as we go towards Jesus together to receive the good news of the gospel. Because of the beat of the gospel, we have a rhythm of authentically drawing near to God together. We're here to draw near to God. We're not here to keep up appearances. So if that is something you feel like you have to do, as I often feel like I have to do, that isn't in line with the gospel. That's not church. That's not community. Living authentically, drawing near to our God is. Verse 23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. The original audience for this letter was Hebrew Christians, and that means that they were an extremely marginalized people within their culture. And as we tracked through the book of Acts, we saw how these people who were Jewish people that first received the gospel and responded to Jesus and started following him, as they start sharing the gospel with others, they do ultimately receive a lot of persecution, a lot of pushback. The interesting thing is, as they go to Gentiles and as they go to foreigners, most often that that persecution is not from those people that they're sharing the gospel with. It's from their own people. It's from the people that are supposed to be their tribe, their family. It's the religious leaders even that are following them around from town to town, trying to stop them or cause dissension in their message so that people won't respond to the gospel. This is an extremely marginalized people who do not have a true home anymore. Their home is now in Christ. And it's to these people that the writer charges them to hold on to the hope that they profess without wavering. And why? Because of the faithfulness of their God. There is ultimate security in God's promises to his people, despite what our circumstances might be trying to convince us of. The hero throughout scripture is God, not mankind. Mankind fails again and again and again. But there are these moments in scripture that are so beautiful and leap off the pages. And it's when these human beings who almost always fail and fall and mess up and sin. There's these moments where they choose to cling to their hope in God, despite devastation, death, enemies, temptation, consequences, or other seemingly insurmountable circumstances that they're being confronted with. And it's truly beautiful when you, when you see a community of them doing that together. This made me think of Daniel, where we're introduced to three individuals, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
who for this time, the people of Israel are exiles in Babylon. And the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has set up this idol that every day there's going to be this music played. And when this music plays, everyone's to stop what they're doing and bow down to this idol and worship it. And the music plays. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they follow Yahweh. And they don't bow down. And they do this together. And then they're brought in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter three, they're asked why they didn't do this. And do they know how severe the punishment will be? They're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And the interesting thing is, Daniel writes, not that like one came up and and said something, but it says Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego together said this. And whether it was one voice or in the unity of the spirit said this to Nebuchadnezzar, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know your majesty that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Their hope is unwavering in their current circumstances, totally believing their God can save them from the fate that is in front of them right then and there. But they're like, God may choose not to do that. And ultimately, our God still will deliver us from your hand because you, Nebuchadnezzar, do not have ultimate authority and control over our lives. Yahweh alone has that. So we will worship him and hold on to the hope that we have in Yahweh, unwavering. Because of the beat of the gospel, we have the rhythm of unwavering hope as we fix our eyes together on Jesus, come what may. The final, let us. Verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The first let us was this let us have faith in what Jesus has done and live authentically drawing near to him because we trust in what he's done. The second let us, let us have unwavering hope. And the third let us is let's consider the other people in this room. Let's consider the people in the communities that we're in and make it our aim for them to grow in love and good deeds. When we first did kind of like a soft kickoff to the series back in November and did a standalone announcing we were launching community groups and all that too in January, I mentioned that in my short life, I know, a killer to community that I've seen in myself and in communities I've been a part of is when we come in with the rhythm, the posture, the mindset of what can I get out of this? What can these people do for me? When we carry that mindset into church, into sitting in a living room with people as we pray and talk about life, we start then to notice, man, this just feels awkward. 
Like, I, I could be so many different places than this. Like, for me, I could be watching the, no, I can't watch the Blazers because of the subscription thing. But I could be playing basketball or playing disc golf or sleeping. Why be here with people so different than me? I have nothing in common with these people. When we carry the posture of what can I get out of this, we say, man, this worship just isn't my style. The sermons are way too long. Sorry. The sermons are way too short. Not sorry. I just don't like the carpet. It's all going away. Don't worry. We fix that. Unintentionally with a pipe. But instead, what Hebrews invites us into, instead of coming to community and saying, what can I give out, give, get out of this, it's what can I give to them? How can I serve my brothers and sisters? That we are to support, to cheer on, to encourage, even lovingly confront one another, all with the hopes to grow together, to be a community of God's love and good deeds in the world. In his book, Dangerous Calling, former pastor and author Paul Tripp says this, autonomous Christianity never works because our spiritual life was designed by God to be a community project. And for those of you that hated group projects in school because you did all the work and you couldn't trust anybody else to carry their load and contribute. This is probably bad news. <laughs> Life as a Christian is a community project. And if you're like me and you loved group projects in school because you got to ride the coattails of the people that actually wanted the A, guess what? This standard calls us, you and I, to give our best to one another. To not just ride the coattails of the people on the stage. To not just ride the coattails of the people that look like they have more spiritual giftedness than you. To ride the coattails of people younger or people older. But it's for all of us to look around this room and ask God, how can I mutually love and encourage my brothers and sisters in this place to increase in their love and their good deeds? How can I help them come into alignment with the beat of the gospel and us live in this pattern, this rhythm of life together? And we need, God has chosen to use you to do that in this place. Whether you feel like I'm ready for that or like that sounds like the last thing I want to do. And we don't give up meeting together. And man, that is a charged thing. Probably for our church, probably for a lot of churches that during COVID lost, as I talked to other pastors, half to a third of the people in their congregations. And let me say this, or let me say what this doesn't mean and what this does mean to not give up meeting together. What it doesn't mean is that there aren't ever circumstances where we shift our level of connectedness to a specific Christ community. People move, God leads and directs. How I ended up at Harvest is because I got connected to the youth group and God clearly directed me. I left my church to do that, right? 
And my church blessed me doing that. It was a good thing. And that can be a really good thing. There's also harder circumstances where there's just theology you cannot get behind. And not only would it be a distraction to you, but you could become a distraction to that community of people if you are to stay. There's spiritual abuse. There's documentaries all about it now. Not just on Christian spots that you could find podcasts, but the world loves finding these stories. And unfortunately, there's far too many of them. There's brokenness that happens in churches. But what this does mean is that our call to stay in community is directly connected to our consideration of spurring others on towards love and good deeds. That in a country where there are a billion options for church or even just a really good podcast we could sit at home and listen to from the the best preachers on the globe, maybe at times we don't fight to stay in community like we could. And I wonder if even the opposite is true. Sometimes do we stay in community for the wrong reasons? Not that we should leave, but we stay because it's comfortable. We stay because we know what to expect. Instead of staying for the reason Hebrews lays out, to pour ourselves into the lives of others and trust that God is going to use people in that community to do the same in your life as well. And we are to encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. This day, why it's capitalized in the passage is this isn't any day, it's the day of the Lord. It's judgment day. And it's the day where God rids the world sin, death, and evil forever. And the commentary that I read um, said that there is great hope and encouragement with the authors of Hebrews laying it out this way. And also there's a warning here. We can read this passage and say, encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching that all of this is going to come to an end at some point and what will remain is faith, hope, and love. So continue in these things, even in the midst of persecution and brokenness. But also there's a warning. There's a day where this is all coming to an end. Let's not waste the time that we have on this earth together as a community. As we conclude this series, I wanna just leave us with a question. What is a step for you to take towards living in a rhythm of Jesus' community? In the ways that we've talked about community, how is God inviting you to just take a step of trust and faithfulness toward him and his ways, aligning yourself with the beat of the gospel and the rhythm of community, living out that beat on a day-to-day basis? The band can come up as we get ready to receive communion. One more quote from Paul Tripp, and I didn't even realize how it connected so much to what we're about to do. He says this, I have now come to understand that I need others in my life. I now know that I need to commit myself to living intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I now know it's my job to seek this community out, to invite people to interrupt my private conversation 
and to say things to me that I couldn't or wouldn't say to myself. 